0: Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our Teaching of the Week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. And um, all right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching.
1: Good to be with you this morning. If you're new with us. My name is Landon and I am uh, have the privilege of being one of the, the team members here with Restoration Church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 12 and we will uh, dive in there in just a moment. Before that, uh, a few things for you to know. So if you've been with us for A little over a year or more. Uh, The past, I think, three years now, we've done what we've called six weeks of summer, and we've kind of had our outdoor gatherings for, for six weeks beginning in June, it's been a really special time for the most part, something we've really enjoyed. And simultaneously, it is an absurd amount of of work and stress, especially for Nate and his team and Whitney and her team. And so this year, uh, we kind of brainstormed and went back and forth and back and forth about how to approach it uh, this time. And what we kind of did is sort of Uh, deconstructed the ingredients of what we thought were the wins of six weeks of summer. What were the good things that came about as a result of it? And kind of asked the question, can we do that in a more efficient way? And so the things that were, I think, really valuable over these years were... There's a, a beauty in just being outside. Like that's one of the best parts uh, about Prescott. And there's kind of this bridge that happens. That's really beautiful when we worship outside. There's almost this beautiful compilation of the the cars on the streets and the occasional siren and cicadas and birds and activity and life. And it's like. There's this bridge from what we do on Sundays into the everyday stuff of life, as simple as it is, from not being contained in these walls to just being out there. That's good. I think there's this kind of symbolism and and power in that. And it's also sort of not good. It's a little bit distracting and and challenging simultaneously. So we're trying to take the, the best of that. Also, one of the things that I think is really positive that six weeks of summer did is that relationships were kind of just catalyzed and built at a different level. We get the services, multiple services together for one. There's just a kind of unique way to meet people. And then a third thing was, I think it was really an on-ramp for a ton of you to participate and help and and get involved in a different way because it kind of takes an army to put together uh, six weeks of summer. If you've been there, you've noticed. So we have a new plan to try to bring out the best of those things, but in a slightly more efficient way. And this is kind of what it's going to look like. On May 28th, that's a Sunday. We're going to do this worship night under the stars. It'll be outside from 7 to 9 p.m. So it's a little bit later, and there will be no Sunday morning gathering. So we're not going to get together that day, but we're going to worship that night in our parking lot. We'll kind of uh, make it the, the whole big thing. It'll be just a beautiful way to be outside, to be in nature, but also have that bridge into the city. So May 28th, 7 to 9 p.m., that's going to launch our six weeks of summer The second event will be June 9th. We'll do a block party. A ton of you uh, were with us on Friday night, and that was just a really fun opportunity. We had the food truck there, cornhole, tons of things. It was just a good time to build relationships. We'll do that again on June 9th. June 16th from 7 to 10 p.m. will be a movie night. We'll rent a huge uh, projector screen and have popcorn and kettle corn and all the things, which will be fun. Then uh, June 23rd, we're doing a family dance that will be in here, and I I shared this a few uh, weeks ago, how I went to this family dance at Lincoln Elementary School, and frankly, I thought it was going to be terrible, but I love my children, so I'm like, yeah, I'll go, and then I got there, and it was actually really awesome and hilarious, and I talked about how my son just was, didn't really know anybody, but he was in the middle of the dance floor just going crazy, and he did that again last night at a wedding we went to. The the dance party, as he calls it, started, and he was out there. My sister, his aunt, was teaching him how to do the worm, and it was just, <laughs> it was just a blast. So whether you can dance or not, whether you should dance or not, um, it will be fun. We'll have an ice cream bar. It'll just be good. So come hang out with us. Uh, July 1st, this makes no sense as I'm reading it, but I think it's true, is the 4th of July parade. And so that will happen right out here uh, on our street. And so what we'll do is we're going to put out a ton of the the tents and and pop-ups that we have and kind of mark that spot. So as many of us as maybe, I don't know if want to, but A lot of us will be able to fit there um, and watch the parade. The coffee shop will be open. We'll kind of set up the parking lot like we did for the block party. We might even do a a fundraiser with food for our juniors and our youth uh, during that time since there will be so many people around. So uh, most of us or a ton of us are here for that anyway. We'll just make it a whole thing. Then the last one will be July 2nd. That'll be kind of our classic outdoor gathering outside. We'll put the two services together. We're going to do baptisms that day and celebrate have food after and just spend a time enjoying the, the outdoors. So six weeks of summer, similar, different. We'll keep that up. There will be a, like a postcard that'll let you know so you don't miss those dates as well. Uh, We also have a welcome lunch today, and so if you're new, newer to the church and you either have questions about it or you're trying to figure out like, hey, this is the church I want to belong to, what do I do next? Welcome lunch will be immediately following uh, this service today. You'll go outside and then in through the garage door into the studio. We'll provide lunch No need to to RSVP if you haven't. Feel free to just uh, show up. I'll share a little bit of a vision and kind of the why behind how we follow Jesus uh, together as a church family. I think you'll get to meet uh, a couple of our elders and then ask any questions you have. So we'd love for you to join us for that today if uh, that's a category you fall into. All right, with that said, Mark chapter 12. Last week we talked about What it means to actually be loved by Jesus. I think it's maybe something we oversimplify and assume that we've kind of thought through. But in this series that we're in, Loved By and Love Like Jesus, we want to take kind of a deeper dive into what does it mean to intentionally think through Being loved by Jesus. And then on the other side of it, as we or after we receive that love, what does it look to actually love like Jesus? Not just the simplicity of being saved from hell and to heaven or something like that, but to actually be loved by Jesus. What does that look like and mean? Last week we talked about how that means to be loved. By Jesus means you are seen and known fully by Jesus. Now, that's a, a deeply good thing, though sometimes it can be a little bit scary, and we'll kind of continue that theme today. In the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll oftentimes see this pattern that the authors do. Well, They'll string together two or three or four different teachings or or accounts of what Jesus did or said in a way that... Individually, they make a point, but together, they make kind of this increasingly powerful point and work together and collaborate to do that. And so in Mark 11 and 12, there's these three things that are separate, but work together to make one single point, and that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to start in Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. You can read this with me if you'd like. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built A watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers, but they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Again he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, they beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally he sent them to them, saying, or sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they, meaning the Pharisees, the religious leaders of this day, knew that Jesus said this parable against them. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. In the context of this is what was just said, the religious leaders had been in control of what it looked like to follow Yahweh God in this culture and at this time. And what Jesus is communicating to them directly, they were there, and those following Jesus around them, everyone there was, what they're doing is wrong. And and not in a small or or just an insignificant way, but Jesus was taking the ways they had distorted what it meant to know and follow and worship God incredibly seriously. That's why they were angry enough with him to at this point want to kill him and eventually to do so. Think through a a few of these scenarios with me. A, A man's wife is diagnosed with cancer and he just doesn't care. He doesn't value the relationship. For him, this is really just kind of a logistical nightmare, something to figure out. He doesn't help think through research plan with treatments. He doesn't support and care for her. He just waits and he lets her problem be her problem. Or maybe in a different scenario, a man's wife is diagnosed with cancer and he's completely and totally, utterly devastated. He's overwhelmed He can't function, he can't take it. He's paralyzed with fear. His anxiety's killing him, can't make decisions. He doesn't help, not because he doesn't want to, he just doesn't know how to. Her problems paralyze him. Or a third scenario, a man's wife is diagnosed with cancer. She means the world to him, but he doesn't know how to handle it, so he just lives in denial. He pretends that uh, it's not a real thing because he's afraid of what will happen if he actually internalizes the reality of that diagnosis. And so in denial, he pretends that it's not there and he just ignores the problem. Jesus will never be paralyzed by our problems. He'll never be overwhelmed or not know what to do with our problems. Jesus also will never let our problems just be our problems. He comes in as our king and our savior and our shepherd, and he dives in leading the way. And he'll never be in denial about our problems. He enters right in. Jesus doesn't operate like any of the the husbands in those brief scenarios. Jesus does something And the thing that Jesus does is always the right thing. As in, this moment with this parable of the vineyard, that's what is being communicated. The religious leaders of that day had distorted this religion, had distorted what it meant to follow and worship and know God and live in his good way. And so what Jesus is communicating was that the Father would rid that vineyard, the kingdom, the world at that point, of that distortion. He wouldn't just stand by and watch. He didn't not know what to do. He wasn't paralyzed with fear or questions. He dove in and he did what needed to be done, and which was to remove those teaching, leading and unhealthy ways. When religious leaders or practices or ideas or visions or teachings are presented, that are distortions, a twisting, a turning of what actually is the truth, God doesn't just stand by. Out of love, he does something. We'll see something similar in Mark 11. We're going to kind of rewind to Mark 11, verse 12, which happens before the, the parable of the vineyard. We read this. The next day, when they came out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs, he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. We'll skip the next portion and go to uh, like 24 hours later, verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. The the fig tree here represents Israel, and maybe more specifically, Israel's leadership and the fruit that they were to produce with God's kingdom and his way of life and his love. And notice a couple things. Most trees don't wither overnight. It takes some time. But Jesus sees and declares that this was not the way it was meant to be. This was a distortion The inside of the tree, though you couldn't see it from a distance, was rotting. And then the next day, what Jesus declared was wrong was put to death. It withered. It was gone. And so again, in this sequence of three stories, accounts, and teachings, Jesus is saying that he will do something about false teaching, about religious distortion, spiritual distortion, anything presented about who God is that isn't whole and right and true. Jesus takes bad religion, false teaching, and any distortion about the Father, Son, and Spirit very seriously. I want to read you a quote from a book called After Doubt. A.J. Swoboda says this, bad doctrine can actually harm the human soul. Just as we would not give a degree in medicine to someone who did not know the human body, we should not be willing to put people in power who preach and teach false ideas about God that can kill the soul. Just as an ill-equipped doctor can make people more ill, so the dissemination of lies can harm the soul, ideas matter. Truth brings life. Lies kill, isolate, and give birth to spiritual death. And that's not just preaching like I'm doing right now on a stage with a mic. That's conversations in passing. That's a parent to a child. That could be a podcast or a book or however you get the information and kind of teaching or whatever it is that you get. But it's powerful for good or bad, and as such can be devastating as well. Jesus takes it seriously. Religious distortion. I want to talk through maybe some examples of what religious distortion looks like or maybe how you can know if something is a religious distortion. Here's kind of a framework. The first is this. Anything promoting shame is not of God. So we see this in in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have this beautiful relationship with God. Satan comes in to distort that. He doesn't just tell blatant lies. That's too obvious. The Bible talks about and uses the, the word brilliant to describe Satan. He's good at what he does. And what he does is cause shame in the hearts of God's children. And so instead of going to him, they run and they hide. Anything, any teaching about God, about the scriptures, from the scriptures that promotes shame, running and hiding is most likely not of God. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't promote guilt. That's different. The knowledge of right and wrong. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of really hard things that the scriptures teach us, that the Spirit will say, calling us out, calling us to something better. But it won't be something that causes us to turn and run from God. The Spirit will always cause us to return to God and his love and his ways. Next, anything promoting a person to be worshipped. And this happens a lot in political arenas, arenas, athletes, pastors, religious leaders. Anything that elevates a good leader and makes him a God-like leader is probably not of God. That doesn't mean there's not good leaders Worth following and listening to, but if they get elevated or elevate themselves to a place of something like worship, that's a big, big, big yellow or probably red flag. Next category of how to know a religious distortion. Anything causing dependency on anything other than Christ. Anything causing dependency on anything other than Christ. And most often again, because Satan is brilliant. It's going to be good things, probably godly things, probably spiritual and religious things that we become dependent on. So that's the key word. When we're dependent on things other than Christ, the teaching leading to that dependency is probably a distortion of what is good and whole and true. That could be, as crazy as it sounds, the Bible We could become dependent on Bible studies and the circles we sit in to do the programs we do within church in ways that actually kind of put humility to death and rise up pride and we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and we get arrogant about it and we like to point fingers and we get judgmental and hypocritical and all of a sudden we have a dependency on a way of being Christian, quote unquote, instead of on Christ himself could be legalism, could be freedom to just partake in whatever we want without thinking through the way of Jesus and what it means to be human the way he's made us to be. But those are a few ways to think about what might be a religious distortion. Here's the key point today. To be loved by Jesus means he wants to and will remove distorted religion from your life. And that leads us to our our third and and final section, Mark 11, 15 through 19. So this is in the center, timeline-wise, in between Jesus seeing and cursing the fig tree, the distorted religion, and the distorted religion, the fig tree, withering overnight miraculously. That's power behind Jesus ending this distortion of religion. So smack dab in the middle of that, here is what happened. They, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves." Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city." This is often referred to as the, the temple cleansing or, or cleansing of the temple. And, and I want to kind of pause and frame something specific about this. So we fast forward to what Jesus does on the cross, what we talked about on Easter, and the curtain is torn, and the presence of God is freed. It's no longer contained. And there's this transition from the presence of God being housed in a temple or a spiritual house, a physical location where they'd have to go to to worship and to be near to God's presence, to what Paul describes in Corinthians when he writes a letter to people like us in a city trying to figure out what it meant to trust Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, and he tells them that you are now the temple, that individually and collectively as the church, we are the temple. You don't go to a temple. This is not a temple, but the presence of God lives within you if you're following Jesus. So keep that perspective in mind as we read what Jesus did to the temple at this time when he cleansed and purified it. To be loved by Jesus means he wants to and will remove distorted religion from your life. Here's what that means specifically. Jesus will cleanse us from distortions, distractions, and obstructions hindering us from experiencing his presence. Look again here at at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers tables and the chairs of those selling doves. So the part of the temple that he's in, if you remember, uh, I don't remember actually, a few weeks ago or something, I showed you the, the picture, the diagram of the temple. And this is the Gentiles court. So it's not in the Holy of Holies, not on the inside. It's a little bit on the outside. And so this is the only place that those Gentiles are allowed to go to experience the presence of God, to worship, to be near to God. And you can kind of imagine if it was in this room. It's not a temple, but imagine if it was. And let's go ahead and add some sheep and some goats. Got some different animal noises. And guess what those animals do from time to time? It would smell not so great. Kind of like this room starts to smell in July because we don't have a good cooling system. It's not great, but we're still here. And then on top of that, there's coins kind of clanking because there was specific animals that had to be sacrificed. You can't just bring any animal. And it had to only be in one currency. And so they had to have this currency exchange. And so there's a market rate for that. And they're yelling out what that rate is. And they're handing over money and transitioning it. There's the animals in there. It's chaos in this place where they're supposed to experience the presence of God. It's distracting. It's hindering. And that's when Jesus steps up and does what he does. Verse 16, he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Listen to the verbs here. I love paying attention to the verbs in the life of Jesus. Jesus drove out, Jesus overturned, Jesus would not allow. Drove out, overturned, and would not allow. Jesus cleared the dwelling place of God's presence and spirit, of systems and structures, of people, of clutter and noise and distraction that all hindered people from experiencing the presence of God. And so now if we are the temple of God and his presence and spirit are housed within you, is there anything that the temple that you are needs cleansed of? The way Jesus did this clearing out, again, the verbs, was driving out, overturning, and not allowing. So let's be more specific. Is there anything that needs driven out of the temple you are? Is there anything that needs poured out? Is there anything, a system, a structure, a value that needs overturned? These are things to think about. Now, why did Jesus come into this scene and and really do this violent action and moment? Out of love, because Jesus loves us, here Jesus loves you, too much to let religious distortions reign in our lives. We just sang that song, you reign above it all. The good news in that is that we're going to get deceived. We will get distracted, we will get confused, we'll buy into things we shouldn't. But Jesus reigns above those. To be loved by Jesus means that he will remove and cleanse us from the distorted religion that sometimes takes a foothold, a stronghold, and begins to rule in our lives. Now, that often can be a painful process. Driven out, poured out, overturned. Those aren't like super friendly, comfortable terms. You can kind of think about it this way. It's extremely uncomfortable, but extremely loving for a parent to intervene in the relationships of their children. If there's somebody in their life that's going to be an influence that they don't understand it at that moment, but slowly but surely will tear them apart, it's really loving, though it's really uncomfortable for the parent to step in in that moment. It can be really uncomfortable and really loving for a parent with an adult child who's stuck in home forever to kick that child out because they're actually being held back from who they are supposed to be, and that enabling's not love. Not in every situation, but that is a reality at times. It could be uncomfortable, yet the most loving thing to do is to take the keys away from somebody who's had too much to drink and is about to drive home. Oftentimes, discomfort and love go hand in hand. Not always, but oftentimes. Though this cleansing process that Jesus does is undoubtedly good for us. It is often met with both internal and external resistance. Look at at verse 18 here. Then the chief priests, here religious leaders, and the scribes, those are the ones that know the scriptures best. They just hand wrote it over and over again, so they're pretty knowledgeable. When they heard this, they started looking for a way to destroy Jesus, for they were afraid of him, because because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. When Jesus starts this process in our hearts, in our lives, in the temple that we are, expect resistance, because Satan does not go down easily. He wants those religious distortions to rule in our lives. Again, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves people too much to let distorted religion rule in our lives. To be loved by Jesus, again, means he wants to and will remove distorted religion from your life. This means Jesus will cleanse us from distractions, distortions, and obstructions hindering us from experiencing his presence. That's the point today. Now, I'm going to spend just a few more minutes talking about what do we actually do with that. So, a few thoughts. Number one, you have a choice. You get to decide if you want to invite Jesus to do so or if you want to roll the dice. So, two options. If we decide to invite Jesus to cleanse and and purify the temple that we are, We're a part of that process. We get to to be in the know and experience it with him. We may have a a little bit of, of decision making and you don't have to choose that. You can choose to roll the dice and kind of extend that down the road. And all that means is that it's still going to happen. You'll just be more shocked by it and confused and it'll probably be more painful. But Jesus loves you too much to let religious distortions reign in your life. So it is going to happen if you are a follower of Jesus. Number two, partner with Jesus. He's, he's in charge of this whole process, but we have to practice discernment and practice having good judgment. That can be prayer, reflection. It can be just simply being honest with yourself. I think Sabbath plays a huge role here. Sabbath isn't just about physical and spiritual, emotional, relational rest. The reason we prioritize Sabbath as a practice for us as a church is because in this once-a-week, 24-hour window where you stop worrying and you stop working and you stop wanting, you actually, actually get clarity in your head. And so God speaks to us in those moments. It could be silence and solitude, it could be fasting, these temporary tools that are not meant to be ongoing, never-ending things, but are aids to help us partner with Jesus periodically. Third, prepare your heart for what comes next. Because at the end of the day, while we can always trust that trusting Jesus will be good and worthwhile, does not mean it's going to be easy. And it probably won't be comfortable, though it will be good. Again, to be loved by Jesus means he wants to and will remove distorted religion from our lives. Again, that means he'll cleanse us from distractions, distortions, and obstructions, hindering us personally from experiencing his presence. That's what it means to be loved by Jesus. Now the to love like Jesus part. To love like Jesus, and I'm going to pause here because this is kind of scary, what I'm, about to, what I'm about to share. There's like risk in me sharing this because we could really mess it up. So I need you to like really check in with me here. To love like Jesus means there are times, not all the time, but there are times we will play a role, not the prominent role, but a role in helping to remove distorted religion from the lives of those around us. That's a calling God gives to us from time to time. But many of you in this room have experienced the harm of people doing that really poorly or people doing that when they shouldn't have or people doing that just foolishly and stupidly because they don't actually know what they're talking about. And so there's risk in me even sharing this because we could go out and actually cause a whole lot of harm, which is something that often happens kind of to and by and from and through Christians. I want to read another quote from that same book that helps us think through this. It says this, "'The person with the Spirit,' Paul writes, "'makes judgments about all things. "'And thank God the spiritual person does discern and judge. "'Without judgment, the most vulnerable among us "'are exposed to the greatest harm. "'When my son needed a babysitter, "'we never went to Craigslist "'to find someone who was free for an evening. "'We found people who we knew, "'where they lived and could be found,' And held to account. This is good judgment. Without good judgment, the least of these are put in harm's way. This matters because religious distortions, distortions of who God is, are powerful in good or bad ways, but they will be powerful. So this is a weighty, serious task. As we close, let me provide just a few kind of rules of thumb of how to go about this or to know if we maybe should go about this. Number one, ask for humility and wisdom. Meaning start by praying to God to ask for humility and wisdom. Do not skip this step and do not assume that you have either. If you're assuming that you have either, you probably have neither. So let's start by asking for humility and wisdom. Number two, value and have zeal for the person you might need to approach like Jesus has for us. The the scriptures say that uh, Jesus was consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord, meaning that the place where the presence of God was housed, Jesus viewed it as so important. He was zealous over that. So when we see other people that might have this moment or this thing or this system or structure or person or teaching in their life, hindering them, keeping them from the presence of God, We should be zealous over that, not arrogant. We should be humbly passionate about creating freedom for them to experience who God actually is as our perfect, loving God. Number three, pray, wait, keep praying. Again, prayer reminds us this is not our job to do, but we get to partner and participate. Wait is just wisdom to keep us from doing something dumb. And at the end of the day, if you wait, if you're considering, hey, maybe I should have this conversation with a parent, with a child, with a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, whoever it is, if you wait, it will still be there if it's from the Spirit. And that protects us from just making an emotionally reactive decision to do something that we might regret or maybe we won't regret but might cause harm and to kind of like add to the pressure of this there's this other place in the scriptures where Jesus is talking to religious leaders and he's talking about those that are young maybe physically maybe spiritually those who are not mature and what it means to follow Jesus and he says if anyone is to lead any one of these astray in essence it'd be better to tie concrete around your neck and dive into the ocean and drown so And he's not like making a joke. He's saying, this is how significant that is. So when we approach or think or consider, we pray, we wait, we pray, we ask for humility and wisdom to maybe have a conversation with somebody, this leads to my next step, be 100% sure. And that requires discernment. I'm gonna close reading uh, a last, Quote from that, that same book, and it's long and it's a little bit heady, but I think it matters. It provides a really helpful framework and paradigm for thinking through what may or may not be a religious distortion. So I'll put it up that way you can uh, read along if that's helpful. The Spirit always points to Jesus. We see this time and again in the biblical tapestry, tapestry of the Trinity. Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, consistently points to the other persons in the Trinity. Jesus points to the Father. The Spirit points to Jesus. The Father points to the Spirit. They always point to the other. The persons of the Trinity never self-glorify, seeking to draw attention to themselves. Rather, they point to each other. I'm going to pause there for a moment. I heard it said, and I've shared it, but it's one of the most helpful paradigms I've ever been given about theology. Almost any, probably any, theological discrepancy, distortion, issue, false teaching can be broken down to an imbalance of the Trinity. And so different denomination, or denominations or concepts or groupings, networks, whatever, might have a, an overly significant emphasis on one of them. Say it's the son. And in that case, you're probably going to have a hyper evangelistic uh, type of following of Jesus that's about salvation and maybe not much else. And we're going to ignore the role of the father and the spirit. It could be all about the Father and then it might end up being very legalistic and judgmental and there's not the grace of Jesus and the power and work of the Spirit. It could be all about the Spirit and then it kind of just gets weird. (laughs) But any distortion of those three is going to lead to an incomplete or a distorted, twisted picture of who God is. And don't get me wrong, it will be filled with truth. Satan does not screw this up. He will always pack a whole punch, a whole lot of truth into his lies so that they seem believable. He's good at what he does. And then he will just twist just enough. he will distort just a bit so that we buy it and follow. And it's powerful and it's painful. Let me continue reading. Christian philosopher Cornelius Plantinga brilliantly writes that this is one of the marks of God's nature. They exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's nature is inherently others-focused. Let me pause there again, just like you can get to know your spouse or a friend, or an enemy, or a coworker, or a neighbor, or whoever it is. You can get to know what is in their nature, their tendencies, their patterns, what their voice sounds like, the things they talk about and don't talk about, how they talk about those things. You grow accustomed to a person, and that's the the moment where you might have a conversation with someone you know well, and go like, hey, is something up? You don't seem you. It's the same with God because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you're hearing someone speak on God's behalf and you get this feeling like, hey, that doesn't sound like you, God, question that. We can know God's nature and it looks like what was just described. God's nature is inherently other focused. Conversely, the powers of darkness, the demons, evil Satan, which let me pause there again. They know the scriptures well. The scriptures make that clear. Conversely, the powers of darkness, the demons, evil, Satan, dark forces of the world, never point to the Father, Son, or Spirit. Instead, they are always pointing to themselves. While the Trinity always points to the other members of the Trinity, evil always points to itself. The irony... The one who should be self-centered always points to the other, while the one who should be silenced and the lake of fire won't stop self-referencing. The devil is full of himself, but Jesus is full of the spirit. Looking at that framework of who God is can help us understand, discern, judge wisely and humbly and act accordingly about if there's a false distortion of who God is being taught. I'll end with uh, this question. Do you trust Jesus enough to let him cleanse you from distorted religion? If not, he loves you enough and he's going to do it anyway. So when it happens, just know that it is love. Let's pray. Jesus, Thank you that you love us enough to step in. Thank you that you're not paralyzed by fear, that you're never overwhelmed with our problems. Thank you that you never ignore our problems or let them just be our own for us to figure out. Thank you that you care, that you hear, that you listen, that you always do something and that it's always the right thing. God, we invite you to cleanse, to clear, to purify our hearts,
0: who we are as a temple for your presence. Allow us to know you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope this teaching was both encouraging and also challenging, um, helping us to just continue to grow in both our trust for Jesus and learning what it means to practice His way. If you'd like to partner with us, the first is prayer. I mean, we deeply value the people of God joining us in prayer as we seek His kingdom and hunger for wisdom on how to best lead in the context that Jesus has called us. Um, So if you could be praying for us, that would be massive. The second is serving. If you are looking for a church family um, to plug into. We would love to connect with you. And the third uh, is through giving. Jesus has been so generous in providing a wonderful space in downtown Prescott, Arizona um, to really be a light for this city and to love its people well. And if you call Restoration Church home again or um, just would like to partner with us financially, you can do that by going to restorationaz.org and click the giving tab in the menu options there. So, Thanks again. And in closing, I just want to remind us Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.